Mars 2020 Perseverance. It's not your father's dune buggy. I'm Tanya Hall and joining me is Matt Wallace, Mars 2020 Perseverance Deputy Project Manager at JPL. Welcome, Matt. Thank you very much. It's nice to be here. Give us a brief summary of your professional background, including your work with previous Mars rovers. Well, I've been fortunate, fortunate enough to work on uh, all five Mars rovers. Uh, this is my fifth, believe it or not. And I can tell you it's, it's, uh, it's good work if you can get it. It's a lot of fun. I started on the Sojourner rover, which was just a small uh, microwave-sized uh, rover that, that launched in uh, 1996 and landed in 1997. It was really just a demonstration mission. Uh, and then I moved on to Spirit and Opportunity, which landed in 2004. Um, I was the uh, spacecraft manager for the Curiosity mission, which landed at Gale Crater in 2012. And uh, now I've been working on this one for uh, about eight years. I started, I started this one almost right after we launched uh, Curiosity in 2012. What a list of accomplishments. Um what are the goals of the Perseverance mission? We have several goals. Uh, one is to uh, bring our science suite uh, to uh, Jezero Crater and to characterize the geology and history of the landing site. Um, the second goal is to look for potential biosignatures. And uh, biosignatures are indications of potential ancient life on Mars. Mars was once much more like our own planet. Um, it was wet. Uh, it had uh, magnetic poles to protect it from radiation. Uh, and, uh, and, and we believe it, it was uh, an environment that was uh, potentially conducive to the initiation of life, much as life initiated here uh, on Earth about the same period of time. So so that's the second objective is to look for those potential signatures. And the third is to actually cache samples on the surface of Mars after having characterized the geology and the potential for life at the landing site. Uh, and so we hope to cache somewhere in the neighborhood of 30 to 40 samples that can be returned to the Earth uh, so that those samples can be investigated with the full power of uh, the terrestrial science equipment that's available to us here on the Earth. And again, the key is really to look for those faint trace signatures of, of uh, chemical signatures from billions of years ago uh, on the surface of Mars. Um, and then we have one more kind of unique objective. It's the first mission where I could say this, uh, and that's to uh, do technology experiments which feed into uh, the types of capabilities that we'll need for future robotic exploration and, and ultimately for human exploration on the surface of Mars. And so we're carrying a suite of payloads and experiments that, that fit into that objective as well. How has the technology of Mars rovers evolved since Sojourner? What's, what's changed and, and what have we learned? Well, we've learned that uh, Mars is not an easy place to operate and to survive. <laughs> to be honest with you, it's uh, it's pretty harsh. You know, the environment, uh, the temperatures get, get down to uh, about minus 130, 140 degrees Celsius uh, pretty much every night. 
and, uh, and then they heat up almost to room temperature. And so those thermal cycles are very difficult for uh, engineering uh, systems to tolerate, as you know. And so, um, so it takes a lot of effort to design in the capability to survive for months and years and uh, on the surface of Mars, just, just from the thermal environment. And of course, there's other harsh um, environmental factors as well. The, the surface is covered essentially in dust, uh, fine grain dust. It's kind of like a talcum powder. And, uh, and that dust has the ability to, to really penetrate into many of the mechanisms and moving parts that we have on the vehicle. And so we've had to learn how to deal with that as well for these longer life missions. Um, I think those are two, a couple of the key, key places that we've really improved our, our technological capability. And then, of course, we're really starting to take advantage of the miniaturization of uh, many of the uh, electronics and um, uh, uh, sensors that are available now. You know, um, we, have, uh, we have a set of uh, very powerful spectrometers out on the end of the robot arm. Uh, that are really just a fraction of the size that these instruments would have been 10 or 15 years ago. Um, and, and they're able to, uh, to really survey our, our targets, our science targets, at very, very fine resolution. Uh, the spot size on the raster is just 100 microns in size. And so we can, we can produce a map at very high resolution of the, of the rocks and, and the targets that we want to look at. That's the kind of technology that we've been able to bring to the table uh, most recently on these, these newer missions. And of course, uh, just general autonomy. You know, we've uh, really stepped up our game with respect to autonomous driving, avoiding hazards, doing that efficiently. Um, we're also, we're, we're going to drive about three times faster than Curiosity drove as a result. Um, you know, we're using cell phone technology and some of our advanced, um, uh, some of our our advanced uh, experiments like the helicopter drone you know we're we're really uh, trying to uh, uh, trying to utilize the, the capabilities that the market has developed um, we're also flying commercial ruggedized commercial cameras much like the you know these these um, extreme sport cameras that that your kids might have <laughs> you know that my kid has uh, and so and we're we've actually distributed those around the spacecraft and we're going to use that technology to the first time ever get high definition video of a spacecraft landing on another planet. So, so these are some of the advancements, you know, uh, in, in capabilities that we've had over the years. Tell us about Ingenuity and how this could help revolutionize exploration of the planet. You know, Ingenuity is, uh, uh, uh reminds me a lot of, uh, the Sojourner rover, which, um, as I mentioned, was the first one I worked on. Um, the, the Sojourner rover was on a spacecraft called Mars Pathfinder, and Mars Pathfinder was designed to demonstrate low-cost uh, delivery systems. It actually landed inside a set of airbags and getting us back to the surface of Mars at reasonable uh, budgetary levels. And, um, and kind of as an afterthought, you know, late in the game, um, if it could possibly work, if it fit, uh, the, we decided to take along a small rover. And, uh, and you know, sure enough, uh, uh, every week <laughs> they threatened to throw the rover off and we managed to keep it on. And, and here we are, you know, a couple decades later on our fifth Mars rover, right? It was a transformative technology for us. 
it taught us that that having just a little bit of mobility on the planet would take us um, through some very diverse different um, regions and targets. And the science community uh, understood the power of, of uh, just having that, that small amount of traversability and, and mobility. Uh, and and uh, from then on, our major surface missions have all been mobile. You know, I think of the helicopter in much the same way. You know, it has the opportunity to really cover a lot of ground fast. Um, we can survey areas of Mars that we can't get to with roving vehicles, you know, steep, uh, steep cliffs and escarpments and, you know, falling up to crater rims and, and things like that. Uh, now this, this helicopter, like Soderner, is just a very limited technology experiment. You know, we're, we're gonna be happy just to get it to fly <laughs> times here. It's a high risk, high reward uh, sort of thing. But uh, it does have the potential to, to change, you know, um, some of the ways we explore and operate, not just on Mars, but there are plans and work, for instance, for a quadcopter uh, to, to go to uh, some of the other moons of other planets uh, now as well. So um, powered aerial flight could be a, a powerful change in our, you know, in our modality for getting, getting to different places on Mars. That's exciting. Is it is it true that we'll be sending a piece of Mars back to the red planet on this trip? That is true. Yeah, we have an instrument called uh, Sherlock, and uh, and uh, it sits out on the end of the robot arm. It's a it's a pretty uh, capable, it's very capable uh, Raman spectrometer, and it's actually paired with a, a microscope capability, which um, which uh, which I think is is very cutely called uh, Watson. So we got Sherlock and Watson, their team, out on the end of the robot arm, and um, and and these instruments need calibration targets and and uh, that sort of thing, as you might imagine, for uh, for surface operations uh, to kind of get baselines for their science instruments. And so, in addition to a number of um, other sort of more standard calibration targets, the Sherlock team is taking a Mars meteorite, which was collected in Antarctica. Uh, which is well characterized. Uh, they're going to put it <laughs> on their target plate and they're going to take it back to Mars with them so that we can actually look at a piece of Mars that we know in a Martian environment, you know, with Martian atmospheres and, and, Martian, and uh, all the other environments associated with Mars. So uh, it's an interesting concept. I thought it was pretty unique and, and kind of fun to think about. What's the general sequence of steps and milestones, if you will, that are planned for the launch? or after the launch rather? So uh, we'll, we'll be, we're getting close to, to launch. Um, we've rolled out to the pad and uh, once we uh, ignite the, the vehicle, um, we'll, we'll go through uh, the booster burn, the upper stage burn, which will insert us on our trajectory towards Mars. And, um, and once uh, we're, we actually have a small period of time where we're in eclipse, you know, where, this, where the earth is blocking the sun, and so our solar rays are shadowed. Once we come out of that, um, that shadowed eclipse, we'll turn on our transmitter uh, and we'll go through what we call initial acquisition. Uh, we shorten it up to initial act. And we'll get our first read from the spacecraft on how it did going through the, you know, the launch environment and out in space, uh, where it likes to be, actually. <laughs> it's that, it operates much, uh, much more um, in a much more deterministic way, <laughs> actually, in its native environment. So, um, so initial acquisition, and then uh, within a couple months, we'll start 
um, uh, preparing to to adjust the trajectory of the of the spacecraft. We'll go through four, five, six different trajectory correction maneuvers to make sure we hit Mars right where we want to hit it. We actually have a an entry. We call it the B plane. We have an entry plane which is um, uh, very tight. You know, just I mean, you can think of it as uh, maybe a mile by a mile, right? We've flown 100 million miles. And we have to hit this very, very tight uh, entry corridor in order to land successfully at, at Jezero. And so the navigation is very sophisticated uh, and it takes a number of correction, trajectory correction maneuvers. And along the way, we'll be doing uh, checkouts of our science instruments and our engineering systems. Uh, and then, then things really start to get exciting when we get to the planet. You know, we'll hit the outer atmosphere at about 12,000 miles an hour. Uh, we'll use, um, we will hypersonically steer ourselves by rolling our capsule left and right, uh, right towards Jezero to make sure we land exactly where we want to go. Um, and when we slow down, uh, just due to the ablation heat of the, of the entry capsule, uh, we'll fire our big supersonic parachute. We'll still be traveling at, um, at about Mach 2, you know, about 50, uh, uh, 1,000 miles an hour or so through the upper atmosphere of Mars. It's a 70-foot parachute and inflates uh, pretty dramatically in, a, in about a tenth of a second. And, uh, and uh, that'll slow us down to maybe 100 miles an hour or so. And then we drop out of our entry capsule, essentially, uh, and the rover's attached to something called a descent stage, which is a bit like a, uh, you know, a jet pack, if you will. It's got eight big main hydrazine engines. Um, as they'll fire, they'll slow us down uh, even more. The rover will deploy down on a tether. It's about a 20-foot tether. And uh, we'll slow and slow and slow until the rover touches down on the surface. Once we determine that we've successfully touched down, we'll cut the cables, cut the tether, the descent stage will fly away, and we'll be ready to start our surface mission. So. Uh, we call that the, the seven minutes of terror. <laughs> that whole entry, descent, and landing process is completely autonomous. There's no human in the loop because, of course, the whole thing happens, in, in, as I said, in about six, seven minutes. And just one-way light time alone is 10 minutes. So you can't joystick it, no human interaction. Um, it's exciting, uh, <laughs> exciting and terrifying part of the mission. Seven minutes of terror. Well, there's a, there's a, sh a show title. As we... <laughs> As we reach out and touch our neighboring worlds, uh, and you talked about certainly some, some milestones that are going to be set uh, for this mission, how does what we learn translate back into the commercialization of space? Uh, you know, we, um, we are often, um, because of the nature of the missions, um, forced into development of uh, sort of first-of-a-kind te technologies. Um, sometimes it has to do with um, materials. You know, we went through, a, for instance, a forging process on our titanium flexures that we use in our, in our wheels, you know, which, was, which we developed as a kind of a new process. Um, you know, and as we go through that, that activity of designing and building the spacecraft, um, we're, we're often producing uh, new, new types of um, products and, and, and uh, and processes that the aerospace industry in general can can use, um, and so um, and so that just kind of happens uh, naturally, organically, if you will, as we go through as we go through the the activity, um, and then some of these very small technologies, um, 
miniaturized sensor technologies, for instance, are also uh, the same types of things that are used in things like the, the medical field now. Um, you know, uh, so so there's there's very often a side benefit, not just in the aerospace industry, but but also in the in in other disciplines and industries as well. Matt Wallace, Perseverance, Deputy Project Manager at JPL. If somebody wants to connect with you, Matt, what's the best way they can do that? Well, the best thing I would I would suggest is to follow along uh, the mission at mars.nasa.gov slash mars2020. And you'll see all kinds of um, great information there uh, about the project and the mission. Uh, I think there's some links over to, uh, to some of the, the team members, including myself. Um, you know, uh, coming up on the launch, uh, there, there's a lot of great virtual reality, um, you know, uh, tools and, and, uh, and fun things to do for the family. Uh, and we're hoping that we get a lot of people following along uh, with us throughout, not just the launch, but throughout the entire mission and surface activities. It's going to be an exciting, exciting mission. Uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. And I think, uh, hope everybody else is. Well, it's certainly positive news and we're really excited about, about seeing it with the work that you're doing. Thanks again, Matt. You're more than welcome. Thank you. And you can find more of my interviews right here or at tanyahall.net. Thanks for watching.